New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Mandrinos, and this is the Comedy Legacy Series. We're taking a little bit of a, a turn this week. Uh, my guest is Peter Spellows. Peter has done stand-up, but Peter is more known as an actor and improviser and currently one of the top improv teachers in the entire country. Uh, he's created a legacy for himself with a group in London and another group in Indianapolis. And we're talking about his time in New York. We're talking about his time as stand-up, but we're mostly going to talk about the, the lessons you can learn from improv that will help you on stage as a comedian in whatever genre you're looking to be in. So without any further ado, please help us welcome our guest for today, Mr. Peter Spellos. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Podcast. We have a very special guest, Mr. Peter Spellos. I love him. Is he here? Fantastic. He is here. This he is, is going to be fun. He is a, a, an improv teacher extraordinaire a, and an actor and a writer and a, a comedian. I still remember the yo-yo bit uh, from uh, Who's On First? Fantastic. The Chinese yo-yo, remember that? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) This is an an Alaskan peeing, you know. (laughs) We we know each other for uh, 287 years uh, since the Revolutionary War. We were there. Uh, uh, right. It's, it's talk about an open mic on the field, boy. That was that was a woo. tough room out there. You know, when you die on the field. Well, you die <laughs> on the field. Yes. Um, he he was the first person to call me out on improv, telling me that I was uh, doing a whole lot of old routines from the Marx Brothers and some of the other people, because uh, we do borrow heavily from our influences. So yeah, absolutely, talk- absolutely. You learn from the best. You have to. If an artist, if you can't. If you can't like taste the food of a chef, you know, you, you know it's his food. The same with a comic. You you got to be able to, oh, you know what? Oh, Zero Mostel. Oh, Jackie Gleason. You know, you you see where the influences are because that's all we are. We're an amalgam of um, our influences. Yeah, but you would get the obscure ones, which uh, we were. Uh, Pete had a company uh, at uh, at Comic Strip, Comic Strip Improv Company. We performed on Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, Which was sort of like a hit team of comedians when you start going Rob Ross, Colin Quinn, you, Scott Carter. I mean, it, it was, yeah. it was um, Peterman. What was his first name? He's Peterman a writer for Wayne, Letterman. Wayne Fetterman? Wayne Fetterman, too. No, there was a guy. Uh, oh, Carl Teterman. Carl Teterman. Yeah. Uh, boys and girls, I'm, I'm 66 now, and I'm fracking losing my mind at a, at a, on a huge amount on a daily basis. So if I don't remember your name, and you know whose name I don't remember? Who? Your girlfriend. <laughs> when I didn't pass you, and yeah. you're, you were 18? Were you 18? I was 19. 19 when I auditioned for you. And if she's listening, I'm old. I have no <laughs> recollection who it was. Who was it? <laughs> Joyce Glasser. Actually. She was very funny. I love yeah. Joyce Glasser. See, now I remember. There you go. Uh, I just need a nudge. My uh, my first wife. I've had 19 wives at this point. I, I just keep getting married for no reason. I'm going to call you Sultan or Shah from now on, I think. That would be uh, a better title. No, if you have them all at once, you're a Shah. If you have them in a row, you're a loser. That's, well, that's, that's, that's and, the difference. 
There is a major difference there, Peter. I only had one. And if she's yeah. listening, well, she hates me. She's not listening. So. Yeah, I think this is the one episode she's not listening to. Ah! <laughs> we, uh, we got a, a whole lot to talk about because uh, County Legacy Podcast breaks down and we're trying to talk to performers on what we've learned that they can learn and what they need to learn. And one of the reasons why I brought you in, there's a couple of reasons, but I want to start kind of with an oddball one because you reinvent yourself more than almost anybody else I've ever seen from uh, First Amendment, which which was actually the first place I met you. Um, was it was it really? Oh, yeah. You were on the big team, and I was yeah, one of the newbies. Uh, oh, 19, oh, 1982? That predated my stand-up years. Um, I was there. Uh, 77 is when I... Yeah. took the first class. A month into the class, I was on the main team. They put yeah. me on the lights and they put me right on because um, everybody needed a fat, funny guy at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was the mold of of all this stuff. And I stayed there until 79, three years. And yeah. then I met Jim Brownell, then became the yeah. morning comedy team on WPLJ. So, yeah. It, 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 and you know what? Those First Amendment years, Jim, yeah. Gold. You know, you really learn to we work with. I remember crawling on the floor with Bruce Willis at a, at a, you know, at a 22nd Street loft when we were doing the beginnings of um, First Amendment before we had um, Bond space, Street. Yeah. Right. And in the middle space, Cartoon Alley, an after hours joint in the upper 80s. Yeah. They let us perform and then you could stay for the uh, after hour uh, club. Yeah. So that was improv for me. You know, I did a little in high school, but finding the First Amendment and, you know, a proud alum, I promise you, of, of that group and really talented people I met in that group. I um, I jumped on an improv show at Folk City. Do you remember Folk City? Oh, my God. It's... Uh, I jumped on an improv show yeah, and Jane Brucker kind of ruled the roost of the Sunday funny oh, shows. There. What a funny lady. Yeah. What a and, funny, uh, funny lady. She took a, a shining to me. And in, uh, and of course, as any 18 year old at the time, I had a major crush on Jane. Of course you did. Of course you did. Uh, and uh, in one of the improv scenes, uh, we were doing change of emotion, which was a big deal. Because if she chose you to do change of emotion right. with her, that was, that, that was like a, a green stamp. That, and, that was the spot. Yeah, it was yeah. always the two person spot you wanted. Yeah, and yeah. so she did it and got into change of emotion. And somebody called out lust in her motion, and she grabbed me and she kissed me. I got it. <laughs> I so came out of character. So that's when she sent me over to First Amendment. She went, you're good, you're funny, but you come out of character too easy. This person can help you. You know, Jim, we are cut from the same cloth. Mine was a girl named O'Mara Leary. Um, gorgeous Irish uh, uh, bangs, spandex pants, because, you know, it was the, the 70s and the 80s. And I had a crush on her, and we had gone out in a couple of uh, dinners a few times. Really funny, but and really nuts, which is really why I liked her. Yeah. We were doing a scene at Cartoon Alley. Not only did she plant one, I think she touched my pancreas with her tongue. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I'm never speechless in the scene. I, I, I can't even tell you what the scene was about now. But it was that moment you could see the twinkle in her eye, like, gotcha. You oh, know? Yeah. <laughs> It, and it's deliberate when they do it. It's absolutely, absolutely it's delicious. Brilliant. I torture uh, my students in a different way. I don't kiss them. But, yeah. Um, torturing my students is, is 
is my yeah. favorite thing to do in the world right well, now. But um, you went from morning radio personality, improviser, stand-up. Uh, you went out west and comic and writer out west, back east, and, and now it's uh, back to your improv roots and teaching. Um, how? Why? What? What is the process that makes you constantly reinvent? Um. I, I actually think it's it's the garden I was grown in, improvisation. You know, you it, if something's not working, you let it go, and I mean, don't you know, trash it, but you move on to what what is working. And I always knew there were parts of my career um, that I didn't have, but I wanted. And I was very lucky, Jim. You know, I, I went from the First Amendment and found the funniest man in the world, Jim Brownald, and he was skinny and I was fat. And I, my partners, we always looked that way and brought me on to the Jim Kerr show who I'm so grateful for and we became the morning comedy team and just did that for two years and then my alma mater called me back I went, went to CW Post College and said would you come in and kind of be the comedy consultant at the American Theater Festival I said sure and so six months later I'm teaching college and I'm teaching improvisation and then I had a huge event in my life, which the comedy community remembers when my former, the former Mrs. Spellos and I won a half a million dollars in a slot machine in Atlantic City on her birthday, March 15th, 1987. And it kind of changed the picture of everything, but more in a sense that when we split up and it was very amicable, painful, mm -hmm. but that money seated me in Los Angeles because I knew I hadn't had my film and TV career, you know, I hadn't won those Emmys and Oscars I dreamed of when I was 16 and watching all the shows. And so I went out to LA and of course, what do I do? I find a comic, Rob Ross brings me into a, com, uh, a theater company. Um, and I immediately start teaching there and put up an improv company. You know, I didn't even audition for them. They said, so what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, sit and talk to you people. <laughs> and they're like, who are you? And I went and, you know, I began to tell them who I am, which is, nine more podcasts which is impossible but i always found jim that teaching was my coaches and i've had great coaches in many different areas used to say to me acting is the is the heart of you but your your calling is teaching you know you're a mentor you're a teacher and this is what you do and and i did it through the years i did it in in New York, as you know, I started, and I just spoke to Barry Steiger the other night, you know, Aww. the man who, I always say, he, I, he married me. No, it's the other way. He presided at my wedding. Um, but I remember that first group of comics that we took, and, and you know, I'm going to forget the, all the names, but it was Carol and Vanda and Eric and Scott LaRose and um, Franny Capo and Alan Chan and, and Jimmy and Barry and, and did improv. I said, look, Give me six weeks, I can put you in an improv company together at Who's. And that's when everything started to change, you know, at Who's, and I got the warm-up gig. I did a, um, I did a, a extra bit on Caden Alley where I did a take in the scene. And it was this, Jim. They're going, oh, um, we're praying. This is not our first fight. Don't worry about it. And I have a cup of coffee. And just like any New Yorker, this is what I do. I go. And it got a huge laugh as an extra. And Bill Persky, if you don't know who Bill Persky is, he's on the Comedy Mount Olympus directors, kind of came out and said, son, who the hell are you? I've never seen an extra get a laugh like that in my entire life. You know, and it was this wonderful thing that, you know, I just did a take from what, what, what I normally would do as a comic, Jim, as a performer. Yeah. A week later, 
You know, I'll say the C word. I did the first three um, Cosby shows as the warm up. And, you know, then I, you know, people moved on and different, they brought different people in, but all because of an improv. And I did a, just a, a rolling eye take on Kate and Allie, um, uh, which, by the way, the fact that I got to perform at the Ed Sullivan Theater and I saw the star where the Beatles stood on the floor, yeah. you know, those are the, in LA, I would call them the Hollywood Babylon moments, but those were the moments where you go, you know what? If the bus hit me tonight, I did what I said what I was going to do. And yeah. um, that's when I teach my students. I go, what? I see, I go, what before? You see, before he's a 66 year old man doing the same shit he was doing at 16 and loving it. I said, it's either what you do or who you are. If it's what you do, you'll get good at it. You'll do some things. You'll have successes and failures. But in the end, please go home to Cincinnati. Your parents miss you and have some kids. I said, if this is who you are, welcome to your life. You're going to have to work at Baskin Robbins. You're going to have to do weighted tables you don't want to do. And yet you're going to, you're going to find your career and you're going to find your path. Improv always made sense to me, Jim, because it was so... I was never a monologist like you guys. You know, my first night at Catch a Rising Star, um, Belzer was the MC, and um, it was a Sunday night, um, was with a partner. You know, I always I wanted to be Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello. I wanted to be that. Um, and then I found improv, which really is what fed the comedian in me. I didn't want to be a stand-up monologist, though I could do jokes because, I, you know, I had that Chinese yo-yo thing that, you know, yeah. was terrible. But um, yeah. I wanted to create scenes. What happens if the boys in the Laurel and Hardy, the boys join the Foreign Legion, the boys get involved with a gold mine, you know, Abbott, you know, Abbott is Mike the cop. And, you know, and it just, I wanted the scenario. I was an actor because that's what I studied in, in college. You know, mm -hmm. I got a, B, a BFA in acting because I was on the stage all the time. So I think it was a natural progression for me with improv and teaching just became is who I am, Jim, you know, my students and I have students who are 55 years old who still call me sensei. And that is, you know, and I promise you, I've been called a lot of things in my life, you know. <laughs> you know Sensei does feel good when they say it, though. You know, when, and because I, I take it as, I, I don't want to say reverence, but I'm honored that they feel that way. And I feel an obligation to be the best me. You know, you teach, you, yeah. you see the student, a chef wants to feed a hungry crowd, you know. So I found in Indiana these really great people because they brought me out in a convention because of my voiceover work. And I kept going after the fourth year. Why am I going back to New York? My mom's gone. You know, my brother is on the road a lot and I love him, but, but he, he works and he is, you know, his, his family. And so I was about to move when the virus hit. <laughs> and whenever you're listening to this in the future, this is May 2020 and I'm on yeah. day 70. I'm only wearing underwear beneath this shirt right here. And I am wearing my Mets shirt for you, Jim. I just want ah. you to know that even, you know, yeah. we are Mets fans, this group. So uh, I, I say happily that the one good thing about the pandemic is the Mets are still in it. That, <laughs> right. They didn't lose those four games in yeah. Washington. You yeah. Know. It's because uh, usually by the end of May, you're going, yeah, it's a long season. You know, and you, at, at one night you could just go, Syndergaard, Jesus, Syndergaard, come on, you know, yeah, that, that nodding into your tea late at night. And if we lose the whole season, Syndergaard will have not lost the season. 
And you know what, boys and girls, what's the moral to that story? <laughs> Do what you want because you're not in charge of anything. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk very specifically because all right. um, so many stand-ups uh, that, that have come through your tutelage and most of our audience, I, I assume, are stand-ups. And for me, it was eye-opening because I did start um, with improv and I started with writing uh, and I had a, a great acting training with Bill Hickey when I was uh, a, a kid. And then I got into stand-up and I forgot all of those wonderful rules of right. improv and acting. And when I, um, so Peter and I joke about this. I auditioned for Who's On First. I did not get passed. Uh, but my home club was the comic strip. And when he came into the comic strip, I, I think I was a condition of his employment from Lucian. Uh, Lucian kind of made him take whomever Lucian decided should be in it. Well, and it, you make it sound so, you were picked last and you were playing right field. It, uh, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't that at all, you know. I was just a fat, funny guy on 63rd Street doing shit. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everybody hears about what I created. Oh, yeah. And it's like, we got to get him to our team. So it's like, now I'm the director of my own club. I'm director of improv at the comic strip. Yeah. And that was like 16 gunslingers. Oh, that yeah. was a herd of cats, you guys, because you were all talented. You, were, you wanted to play, but you were punchline oriented, you yeah. know, and... But it was the greatest variety show, you know. Like I said, the names we were talking before, you and Scott Carter and Rob Ross and Colin Quinn and Wayne Fetterman. And we had and, Bill Murray walk on one day and we had um, and we had Robin Williams walk on a couple of times. So, yeah, Jim, those were the halcyon days. You know, you don't yeah. know they are when you're in it. But, but you know, 300 uh, clubs across the country. Yeah. And I, I was lucky enough to do improv at a at a stand-up club. Yeah. You know? And it was great times. What I wanted to get to with this was, um, like every 19-year-old or 20 at that point, I'm incredibly undisciplined, and I know everything. And here I come into an improv company with, you know, and it was filled with Rob Ross and Wayne Fritterman and Barry Weintraub and, and, so, Barry many, Weintraub. and so many other really iconic performers of the 80s and here I'm coming in, and I'm, I'm clearly junior level on it. And you gave me no room to walk away from technique. It was, it, you must do technique. And I'm a better stand-up because of it. Well, Jimmy, that's very kind of you, <clears throat> you know, but it's, we're baseball fans. Yeah. Even the billion-dollar players in Skoda Spring Training, and they run out the same play that they've been running out from Little League. And if your technique is strong, my – I tell you this with all the love of my heart. I was on doing an improv show with – and this is the same how you felt with, with my gang. And I looked at the audience, and you said, you want to see what love is? And they all go, yeah. And they're all sitting behind me, unrehearsed. I go, what am I? And they all go in unison, you're a dick. And, and it, it got a big laugh yeah. because I'm a stickler because when you're in that moment and those ideas are racing through your head and all of a sudden you forget to listen to your partner, um, the technique is what's going to hold you instead. Just like the technique of writing and setting up the joke in yourself and framing it, there is, it's the same as jazz. They just don't start playing notes they're playing in a key, they're playing in a meter, they know what it is, 
And then from there, you can get weird, but just know you've got to come back to base. And, and they, have, they know the theory of the progressions. Right. And, uh, exactly. But and it, it and was, when you're young, you want, you want to fight that. And oh, I'm yeah. just saying you, I'm just saying you want to be, look, I'm funny. I know what I'm doing. And boy, was I that for about a hundred years. <laughs> that, that the most freeing thing in the world is, is, is saying, you know, I have mastery at something, but I'm a novice. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this 45 years and I swear to you, I learned some, I'm, I'm teaching my improv class this week. I got 15 students on, you know, on zoom and I learn something every time I do it, because if I don't, I don't have students for 30 years. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I have to, I have to improvise as, as well as here we are coming up with how do we do this in the new frontier? If I can quote, um, the guy from Steely Dan, um, who I forget now because I'm old. Um, <laughs> Steely Dan. People, do, people think that's an actual guy. Just say uh, Steely Dan. No, no. It's, it's, it's you know, um, do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, Felder? No, the other guy. Yeah. No, don't, don't do this because this is going to become the grandpa podcast and two old guys <laughs> trying to remember a name that they marginally like to begin with. Yeah, yeah. But so I want to I want to talk to you about about form and about what okay. you can learn as a stand up from improv because for me the biggest takeaway um, and I, I will never forget this because you were also very kind with it um, for the two weeks leading up to our first show you hounded me to listen to people you hounded me to stay connected you hounded me to stop thinking about what the next joke was and just react. Um, which are three unbelievably important lessons for a stand-up, especially a young stand-up, to, ma to master. If you listen to your audience, if you're not thinking about the next joke and you yes. just talk and, and, and you're, you're giving to the person with you, you'll get gifts. And we went up that night and we were doing, <clears throat> I, I want to say it was a movie. Uh, we movie styles. Movie yeah. styles. And it was me and Wayne Fetterman in a Western. And Wayne Fetterman, you know, has first line. And he goes, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And I said, because you're too tall and I'm too fat. And the audience right. explodes. And we finish the improv. And you walk right up to me afterwards and you want, that's what happens when you listen. That's correct. That, <laughs> because... Jim, it, it's, it's the, if you've got my students on the line right now, that's what they would say. Listen, listen, listen. That's all I tell them. Like, Shut up. You're not funny. Listen. The minute you listen, you're not funny. My coaches used to talk to us in a way that was about beyond acting. and But I used the – you'll hear it because it's about life itself. If you're interested, you're interesting. But if you try and be interesting, they ain't interested. Okay, yeah. if you're interested in the scene, if you're listening, and that's what interested is, you're interesting. And guess what? You opened your mouth, and it was a brilliant line that you you couldn't have crafted and written any better. Every word in that punchline, Jim, was perfect. But if you tried to be funny, the audience would go, "What was this guy trying to be funny?" It's this trying. It's very Yoda. It's going to get Buddhist in a minute, boys and girls. Um, but that's what it is if you're listening god gene wilder was watch any of the movies watch him listen and that's where he's his funniest he's just 
And you get that from the silence too. I just don't think today the performers are studying enough. And maybe I'm an old teacher saying this, but you and I studied. You and I went to all those movies and say it, you know, 17 times. No, I got to see it one more time. I missed something, yeah. you know. It is about the preparation. When I met Bill Hickey, he came to see a, a show that I was doing with, uh, with a theater group and he came backstage and I recognized him immediately as the drunk in the bar from the producers. Which is the obscurest one to, to recognize him from. And, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, he was the drunk, absolutely. And I proceeded to do a Bill Hickey impression for Bill Hickey. Great, great. For what had to be 20 minutes. And it was dead on, and it, he was entertained for the first five minutes and probably annoyed <laughs> for the last 15. Absolutely. But um, you know what, Jim? That's the honor. You honor, you, you we are sponges, and we yeah. have to absorb their brilliance to find our own. And we, we are truly the amalgam of everything we experience. And as an actor and a writer and a comic, if you, if you know that, You'll be patient and you'll listen. The funniest laugh I ever got at who's on first is about timing and not saying a damn word. So for those who don't know, small room in the basement of a bar, 55 seats. We were the AAA ball club of Catch a Rising Star. They would, when they didn't have, they had overload, they would send us audience. We were always packed. I had a couple in the front row, and you got to, the front row means there's only one other table behind. Them. Uh, <laughs> they were having a blast. They stayed for the ten o'clock show. They stayed. They were at the twelve o'clock show. They were drinking, but they weren't drunk. They were laughing at the, all the comics at all the right places. Um, and Keith Barony's on stage was one of our. I know one of our staples back then. Yeah. You know. If eight out of ten people, that's my favorite Keith Barney joke. Eight out of ten people suffer from hemorrhoids. Did the other two enjoy it? That was my favorite Keith Barney joke. Um, but I, I come on stage as the MC and I go, ladies and gentlemen, a big hand for Keith Barney. And from this row, this guy hands me something. And I reach down, and I swear to on my mother's eyes, Jim, he hands me his prosthetic arm. The entire arm. Now I'm getting laughs just looking, kind of nodding my head, looking at him, looking at the arm, and I thought, wait for it, wait for it, it'll come to you. And after about, I swear to God, it felt like 17 minutes, but it probably was about 20 seconds. I said, you know, I've been given the finger before, didn't even, didn't even need to finish the punchline, you know, the audience went mm -hmm. berserk, you know, but I got the whole arm. Now he, when I met him at the bar, and believe me, we bought his drinks for the rest of the evening. Um, yeah. He said, I've been waiting my whole life. I've been waiting my whole life to be in a comedy club. And someone said, can I get a hand for it? And he oh. you know, <laughs> pulled it off. Um, improv, <laughs> listening. Yeah. I, I, that was it. I had to listen in that moment to this, the, the comedy building up that if I was too early with the joke or the joke wasn't fun, funny enough, it wouldn't have peaked it. Yeah. That's also listening in a 360 degree direction. Yeah. Because you're listening to not only your fellow performers when you're in improv, but you're listening to the audience. Right. And, and you're also listening to the anticipation, which 
which is really difficult to teach. Because I explain it as stop wanting to get to the kiss. I want you guys to get to the moment before the kiss, because that's the you know, and I use it. That's the exciting moment, the the prelude to anything. You know, once you resolve something, the scene is over. You it, you gotta sit in the tension. Because that's where it gets interesting. Why? And and I was never a fan of Lucy, and I don't know why. Because because probably this, she was always in a predicament, you know. And I always felt uncomfortable that she was in a predicament. But that's a very old school setup of the of of the scene. Our boys, our girl, our heroine, you know. It's very perils of Pauline. How did what, how did they get here, and how are they going to get themselves out of this? You know, in a sense, Jim, that became Seinfeld too, because yeah. you, you, you know, and Seinfeld is a much is as much commedia dell'arte as it is anything else. You know the characters; the characters are well defined, and you tune in each week to see them act exactly as you know they will. You know, well, is different. Yeah, you got to uh, stay in that moment and don't know what's going to happen. I I play an improv game that they hate, they groan when I play it. It's called um, first word, last letter. So I do a sentence and the last letter of the last word I say is the first letter of the word you have to start. So there's no not listening. You can't create anything because you don't know how your sentence is gonna start. It's torturous, but it gets them to really listen back in our days of comic strip improv we used to do that with the uh, poetry game yes yeah. absolutely and uh as comics we would all fuck with each other i, I remember wayne fetterman giving me orange and right. uh, me giving rob ross galaxy because uh, we just needed to do that but to rob ross's defense he came up with panic suite so <laughs> good for him that was a couple of funny gentlemen you're talking about yeah, we've come up with different uh, poetry games. We do a Dr. Seuss poetry game now, oh. almost rhyming couplets, and we tell it like we're telling it to little kids, and it 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 it, it works. It's a different show I do now, Jim. You know, there's there's different improvs, and and I've worked. You know, when I'm in Indiana last year, we did a a big show for the local high school, one of the local high schools, because one of mine is the teacher there. So these kids are my theatrical grandchildren, and I came in and <laughs> did classes with them because um, they never. She said, "Oh, they're not going to know what to make of you." I went, "Oh, I know." I said, first of all, when I'm in Indiana, I look like I'm in the witness protection program, um, yeah. you know." And uh, they give me new eyes. Those 16, 17, 18 year olds. I used to hate teaching that age because they're pudding. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're too, they're too amorphous still. You know, I want them a little bruised and battered. I can handle that. I can teach you how to get out of that. But they, their spirit is undeniable. The fact, and it's said, the fact that I can't be in Indiana right now with all these kids who are not having their graduation. Do you know what I mean? They're yeah. having their graduation online. Um, uh, really, that's the saddest part of this pan pandemic for me is I can't be with, I can't be with the kids. You know, I can't be because they're the ones who are re-energizing re me. And at 66, walking with a cane, I've never looked more like Perry Mason in my life at this point. <laughs> in the older years, yeah. um, um, they just make me want to work harder. 
It, it's really true, and and I am, and it's it's. When this airs, I'll have already been announced um, to be on the uh, my Transformers convention. That they bring me out. I had my I had my London improv company there, and that's a whole other story. But they've asked me to be one of the. Uh, I'm I'm the first guest they're um, announcing for online. So it's I have these communities, Jim, that mm. I really. Um, I didn't know how loved I was in the you know, in the strangest way, especially with these Transformers fans. You know, yeah. I just kind of an iconic Skybite. He was half Tom Waits, half Doctor Smith. You know, always <laughs> evil, always evil, but winding up doing good all the time. And they they re, you know, they they made here here's here's the perspective of an old performer. They made all what I did relevant again, you know, because you feel after a while you've done it. Well, well, now when I'm done, I don't want to go to auditions anymore. I don't really want to do this anymore. I want to direct. I want to teach. But their passion for what you did changed my life. These 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 conventions, this this Indiana and 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 Transformers, um, re upped my dedication to my craft and improv and going. All right. I have to figure out new ways to do this too. And it, it's, I think if you're dedicated to the craft, you're dedicated to the craft. And those are the people who last like you, you know, call us dinosaurs, call us boomers, you know, but guess what? Here we are in the podcast. Here we are still working. Here we are caring about the rest of the world, you know, so I'm honored to be mentioned with the likes of Jim Mandrinos at this point of my life. Uh, I'm honored just to be around to be mentioned. Yeah, you, you know what? Amen, brother. <laughs> let's um, let's talk about why stand-ups are notoriously bad at improv. <clears throat> because they're punchline oriented. It's really simple. Because it's not about the scene. It's about getting the it's about getting the laugh. And don't take me wrong. Getting the improv and laughs and improv is great. But they're more concerned about. They're control freaks because they've controlled the material, how it's worded, the take. They improvise. You know, you have to improvise with hecklers and stuff. But they really want to be – it's gunslingers. Again, I always thought you guys were my gunslingers because you didn't want to do the whole fight. You just wanted to go shooting at each other, you know. Yeah. It was fun. It was – from again, herding cats. I, 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 was, I thought I was stealing money at the comic strip. Because I would just go, I do this. They're not going to listen to me anyway here. So you know, and uh, but we we did we did I, listen I know, to you. I know, I know. Reluctantly, but we did. <laughs> well, because it's not who you were. Improv was what you were doing. So there is a there is a, a an involuntary disconnect, I believe, because it's not your passion. You're playing at it instead of playing in it. I think that's the distinction. You can see people who want to get somewhere else and go through improv are usually shitty at improv because they think it's... I have students, and I, you know, of all the students I've had in Indy, most of them are still with me, or they'll go away and they'll come back. Only once or twice where there are a couple who came into the class and wanted something from me. Like, well, first of all, thought I was still connected in Hollywood, you know, 10 years removed, you know, mm. as opposed to what I was taught, you come into a room, especially a new room, and you be a contribution to the room. So you see, you know, you know, I knew, Jim, that you were funny. Um, 
but I also knew that I only had about six or seven people I wanted to pick and you were 18 and, and, and guess what? Here we are. Yeah. You know, you keep bringing me on every project <laughs> almost to like put my nose in it. Oh yeah. Well, I'm just going to keep hiring you. No, how's, it's, how's actually, that? <laughs> it's actually because probably for me, there's, I could point to teachers throughout uh -huh. that I've had throughout my life and directors that I've had throughout my life. Um, and number one for me is Bill Hickey, who I probably learned more from Bill Absolutely. than I could ever possibly repay. Um, <laughs> right down to when he gave me his class for free because right. he saw potential in me. And then when I took the class, he immediately said, okay, you're doing the Romeo monologue for Romeo and Juliet. And they're like, I don't want to do drama and I'd never be cast at that because that's why you're doing it. That's right. Um, yeah. And I didn't understand that till I was in my mid thirties. Right, um, right. By the it, way, you you passed on Bill's work. You do that to your students. I'm sure you've given it away once to somebody that you thought was talented and was really having trouble. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I teach on online with the pandemic. It's pay what you can. It, it's you know, and I've had a couple of people call up and go, "I don't got anything this week." Well, come to class. You know, yeah. it, it's that's the way it is. We're all hurting. We're all artists, and we've all been there. Absolutely. I, you know, I think people don't understand. Every artist has those stories of being incredibly flush and buying the whole crew dinner, and every artist has those stories of uh, if I don't get a gig this week, I need to find a day job. Right. Exactly. You know, so, I'm 55. I shouldn't be having ramen in a package. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. But I, you know, one of the reasons why I keep coming back to you is because those times at the comic strip taught me how to listen, yeah. and you assuaged one of my biggest fears. And that uh, was? Um, when my first thing with, with First Amendment and those guys, it was playing. And then when your company, it was serious. It, everyone was there to, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, the comic strip was wonderful, but it was also a competition. It was yeah, also, absolutely. we all wanted to be incredibly funny. And my fear was because I wasn't a natural performer and I was more of a writer, that I wouldn't be able to keep up with them. And then you were there like, no, you have an advantage. You write, and, and all improv is, is writing on stage. That's it. Yeah, and those words, that sentence, you know, was incredibly liberating for me. Thank you, you know? pal. I mean, I'm, thank you, because it's, 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 it's why you teach, because it's a process of introducing the performer to themselves, which is the beginning of setting it free. You know, it's yeah. that moment in Empire Strikes Back, that, you know, a movie that absolutely changed my life. When he mm. goes into the forest, he takes off Darth's helmet, and it's him. You know, that was the first moment of, of understanding that, you know, I have seen the enemy, and they are us. And you, and you once you get a self-awareness of that, and you get over the ego of I'm fucking up. Yeah. Because that's a young, that's, that's, that's a textbook reaction. You're supposed to react that way. Yeah, and and you know, I, don't you hate all those things they used to say to us when we were young? All the sayings you'll understand when you get older, and and a list yeah. of that bullshit that we went no, no, and now you're like, well, of course, I find myself being that guy now, you know. And here's the thing: it's a throwaway sentence because you knew it. You were able to go. You're just writing on stage, whereas for me, it was like, oh, what? what are you <laughs> Hold on. Yeah, 
it, it's those moments that we have with students that we, we get to see the wheels turn and, and we get to see it connect. And, you know, they still got growing pains because they still have to learn how to execute. But, yeah, now but they that have moment, oh, that moment when you and they and, and my ones in Indiana now let go and you, what you don't, what you see is, man, it was taught to me, Jim, that you should do improv like seeing it through a baby's eyes. You see everything for the first time. And when, when a performer comes to the, you know, they might say in Indiana to come to Jesus moment, you know, you know I like to say to come to Joe Pat moment when you, you know, when you realize, oh, and, and the distinction, and I tell them this in teaching too, is it's never going to be easy, but it's going to get simpler. Yeah. Which in turn will make it easier because your choices are clear. You know, my mom, my mom and all Greek boys adore their mother um, to her dying day, which is almost four years now. Um, I would make her laugh with the same joke. She knew it was coming and it was the philosophy of life I was teaching her and it's my philosophy. And it goes something like this. A guy walks into a doctor's office. He says, Doc, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor goes, so don't do that. And when you break that down, <laughs> that is the basis for Buddhism. Stop, hurts, don't do it. Simple, not easy. You know, you know in that moment, you know how many ex-wives you have, 17? Yeah, 17. You know in that moment before you kiss her that you're like, there's something inside your head going, you know, this is going to really fucking end poorly. Yeah. And then eight months down the line, you went, why didn't I listen? And that's well, the thing, because you didn't listen. You knew. The instant, read the tipping point by Malcolm Gladwell, boys and girls. You knew in that moment, ah, ah, everything was going off, but ego doesn't, no, 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 that's not this. Same with the performer on stage. The minute yeah. you think you know anything, you're <laughs> fucked. The minute you realize, the minute you're interested, you're interesting, you know? Yeah. I try and break it down for them. I call it Mr. Potato Head, too, and that's that's what improv is. Blank, frackin' potato. <laughs> I, put an, I put an eye on it. I give it to you. You put an ear on it. You give it back to me. I put the hat on. Um, I, I, I lost the picture here. Hang on a second. But <laughs> what, what that does is no one's directing. I have to see what you did and add on to what you did. And all of a sudden, the scene has integrity. That's what I tell them with listening. I give you an offer of information. You yes stand. You build onto that offer of information. You don't negate it. You build onto it. And all of a sudden, improv is geometric. Oh, this will blow you away out there, boys and girls. It really is. Because everything becomes, everything is information. But you got to be listening. You're in a scene and you're in the jungle. Well, they'll start just being in the jungle. What? Is it hot? Is it steamy? Is there strange birds calling? Is there something crawling up? You know, be be present. Listen, be present is really the key to being funny. Mm -hmm. And and you know, because because that's the bottom line. We just want to be loved. There's the don't have to take the psychology course. This is what it's about. This is just about love. Um, the minute we stop getting our love from there, we get really interesting and really talented. Because you know that moment in the first Batman that is so Jack Nicholson where Jerry Hall's looking in the mirror and she goes, oh, baby, you look great. And he just goes, I know. 
Like, <laughs> why are you telling me? You know, yeah. you have to kind of own that <laughs> stuff with improv too. If you own it rather than show it, you know, instead of being the comic who wants the punchline. No, you, you went nose to nose with Wayne Fetterman in that moment. You were in the moment. You were in the Western moment. And you answered the question correctly of why it wouldn't work in the Western moment. So that's where the brilliance comes out of, Jim. You know, it comes out of, like we were saying, listening. Now, modern improv or UCB style improv has taken a turn to be more complete scenes, more complete stories, and longer theater with almost the old school style of improv being looked down upon. It, there is that... <laughs> Long form, short form, Hadfield and McCoy. Um, I have students who are in long form companies in Indy. And here's what I say to them. I said, short form, I'm in the entertainment business. I'm here to put on a show. Long form is like theater. I'm there to sit back and watch it unfold. It's like a foreign movie. Mm -hmm. But short form, entertainment. Songs, girls, dancing, pies in the face. I'm from vaudeville. I am but the amalgam of everything I've learned, Jim. So what I teach is energy. We come out there. I keep, always tell them. I said, we may not be the funniest improv group in Indiana, but there's no one funnier. Say you know? words. And, and, and stop worrying about being funny. Just keep... We do a thing called Elf Theater, which gets a huge laugh and we're on TV once a year out there because my comedy mentor Dick Wolfsey is like the Dave Barry of Indiana so he puts us on television every year and we do great lines of elf theater they have to do it in the elf voice you know you know Soylent Green is, 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 is lollipops you know they have to tweak the thing in the elf voice and it's stupid and it's silly and it's the funniest game in the world because it's just there is no, I'm not aiming towards a completion in the scene. I'm entertaining you. It's the mm. first thing I say when we take short form on the stage, right before we go on, I go, hey, we're in the entertainment business tonight. You know, if I wanted my dinner with Andre, I'd rent the movie. <laughs> I, I said, listen to the audience. They'll tell you what's working and what isn't. But, that, but that's the stand-up stuff, Jim. That's going back to the nightclubs and who's on first and studio warm-up. I, have, I can walk on the stage like you and you know where the hot and cold spots are. In 30 seconds, you, you, you take the temperature of that room. I don't think enough young performers see it as anything more than themselves. I always saw it out of the big picture. Because remember, I always saw it as a team. I was watching Laurel and Hardy. I was always interested in that dynamics. And, and I had coaches who said, you know, why don't you think about directing? You know, they saw something in me that I didn't know I had. And, you know, my what? mentors pointed me in all the right directions, you know, even if they were the long way home. <laughs> for Trump, Let's once talk a little bit about mentors, because I, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career, you know, Bill Hickey, an influence at 18, uh, meeting guys like you at 20, being on the road with people like Kennison and oh, Hicks and, and, and those guys who would point me in the right directions. Who are the people that grabbed you by the short hairs when you were a youngling and, and helped you really form what you do now? Well, I have isolated moments. 
I remember the TV producer Mort Lockman coming up to me and giving me the greatest pep talk. Remember, Jim, I was an actor. I had Who's On First for a few months. I had only done stand-up um, alone at that club. Here I am about to warm up a television show with no fucking act. Okay? No act. Just, you know, Mr. Harry Balls walking out on that stage. And he gave me a calm me down. He said, where are we? I go, what do you mean where? He says, the building. I says, do you know the history of this building? And he kind of went, got me back in my body. So that was uh, the most indirect pep talk I ever got. Mm -hmm. My theater teacher, Frank Scaringi, um, kept giving me roles that were, um, I was maybe not ready for or just ready for. A lead in a show, my first lead in a college play, where I had to play the piano and sing and kill my wife on stage. It was, it was John Guare's The House of Blue, Blue Leaves, which I think is one of the greatest you know, <clears throat> comedy plays in the last 50 years. But he, he believed, you know, he, those college professors, I would say, um, Jim, were the most influential. Um, Cloris Leachman, who I never met. I was sitting in the in, on the bed as we all did and watched watched Carson at night, you know, with the TV mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Um, she came on at the height of Cloris Leachmanness, you know, the Mary shows and the Brooks movies, and she yeah. couldn't have been the she she could have been the funniest person on, on movies or TV at that time. And he said, he said, Cloris, what would you say to a young actor just starting out in the business? And I swear to God, Jim, she turned to the camera, and like she was talking to me and everybody else who was listening, she said. There's room at the top. And it was, I really heard that. Like, my mother supported what I did, but didn't understand it. Yeah. My father didn't understand it and didn't support it. So I had no system. I had to always create what you have seen me done for 60 years. Create a family that supported, that I would support and in the end would support me. I'm moving out to Indiana for one main reason. One of these wankers is going to have to help me, you know, at the end and take take me in. You know, <laughs> you know? Um, I would do it in England. They take me in in a minute, but that's just that's too many briefcases and suitcases. I got to move. But <laughs> so, uh, go ahead. Well, let's also talk about influences, because you and I oh. both, uh, you and I both are really old school with our influences. Like I tell everyone. I would have never written or directed a movie had I not have seen City Lights by Charlie Chaplin. Right. You know, and, and I, I studied, I studied Keaton, I studied Harold Lloyd. You know, I, uh, Laurel and Hardy, I think, is an influence for both of us. For me, I think I'm a little more Marx Brothers than than you are. You know, but we've got those, we've got our Mount Rushmores. Who are the people that you, if you can tell someone, these are people that do funny right. These are people you need to study. Well, it has to start at the black and whites where we started. It has to start. I was in a member of the Sons of the Desert, you know, the Laurel and Hardy <laughs> fan club. Yeah. I was. So, you know, uh, it has to start with the boys because it was the relationship that I was attracted to as much as anything else. Now, you say I'm not Marx Brothers because you don't get to see my anarchy side a lot. Okay. Um, so my first anarchy was W.C. Fields. Um, and, and the stuff he did with Charlie McCartney and Edgar Bergen, um, that bitter, old, cheating, lying, and God, I loved him. He was everything that you're supposed to be as a New Yorker, I thought. <laughs> you know? And then 
the Marx Brothers, who were anarchy personified, who were, as I started to study them, actors. You know, coconuts and animal crackers, Broadway shows. You know, yeah. they're vaudeville. I, I still to this day consider myself, when I talk about myself to the students, I call myself the old vaudevillian. This old vaudevillian, because that's really was the, the school. It has to be comedy influence. George Carlin shaped my persona. The, the way that Tom Waits is the muse of my pain and my soul. George Carlin was the was the heart of my New York. My mother used to say, "You're from Missouri," you know. They you have to I have to show you, not tell you. That's a really New Yorker thing. Don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. He was very and as he went along, I continued to learn from him. I saw him at 18 at Fairleigh Dickinson University at, at the height of the Seven Dirty Words tour. I mean, huge influence. Um, but again, it was those years. Vaughn Meters, First Family, all the impressions they did of the Kennedy years and then the Johnson years, you know, comedy albums. I always thought I would have a comedy album someday growing up. But Richard Pryor, you know, uh, That Nigger's Crazy, Sunset Strip, those were groundbreaking stuff that, you know, even in the 70s was, was Maybe you'd hear it on Alice and Steele, the Nightbird on WNAW late at night. You, yeah. you know, they play a side of Carlin or something that. But uh, improvisationally, it certainly would have the one and main influence. Uh, and I think we all stem from that is Jonathan Winters. You know, uh, when I saw him take apart the garage with Marvin Freeman and Arnold Stang, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to spend my life being ridiculously funny and taking apart garages. Um, <laughs> He even had a show for a while. I don't remember when. I think it was just on NBC because Mar Dean Martin would have him on all the time and they'd sit on stools and Martin would have uh, file cards and would throw out scenarios. But he had, it's how I directed theater in my later years, Jim. Um, Jonathan Winter's show was like he was going up into the attic and the attic had props and costumes and hats. It was sort of the thing where they aligned the set with a thousand pieces of information for him to play off of. I thought that was genius. I had his double album, a Jonathan Winters yeah. double album. And um, aside from Rickles influencing the stand up and that W.C. Fields and Mark Brothers, that, you know, were all the same schmuck that, you know, stuff that came out of Lenny Bruce. Um, I think Winters and improv and even, you know, this is the week that we're recording that Fred Willard passed. Yeah, and, and the Ace Trucking Company and all that old stuff and Fernwood tonight and you know, there are so many. But I, I think it's the black and whites, Jim. It's those original comics. Certainly Abbott and Costello. You know, yeah. I watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is my horror film every Halloween. Um, Jackie Gleason, Zero Mostel. Yeah. You know, anybody who was fat and funny that I could go. No, no, really, and that I thought, well, that's. My road, you know, I wasn't Kirk Douglas or Rock Hudson. I wasn't going to play any gladiators or anything, but I was yeah. going to play the bus driver, the taxi driver, the, you know, the poor schlump, you know. I, under <laughs> I understood where my, where I thought my career would be. Of course, it was turned more into murderers, rapists, and killers, yeah. you know, most in pictures, but, you know. Welcome to Hollywood. You do what you're good at, Bob. <laughs> That's what we used to say. You did mention Fred Willard in... in 
just my opinion, Fred Willard was probably the best straight man of our generation. Wow, that's that's hard <laughs> to argue with, Jim. Um, and and my opinion, probably the best straight man since George Burns was a straight man for Gracie Allen on Burns and Allen. You know, that's the, the only one I can think of that I've seen that, you know, might have been better because he understood that setting the person up doesn't mean you don't have your own jokes. The brilliant, which which what made Dean Martin brilliant, you know, in 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 that insanity there. It's it's, which made you know Bud Abbott absolutely brilliant, you know. Yeah. It's it's in the set. It's in the timing. It doesn't work. It's a two-player game. It doesn't work without the other one. And that going back framing this whole thing, Jim. That was always the appeal to me. I didn't want to play one on one. I wanted to play it two. I'm funniest off your line. And that's what improv taught me 45 years ago, that I was really quick. And, and like you, my best was the comeback. I'm a counter puncher, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, you and I are gym rats in that sense. Yeah. You know, we, we just want to be in the game. Now you've, um, you seemingly, you know, because of life, a couple of health problems coming back to take care of your mom. You seemingly trans transitioned more into the teaching than the performing, but you still do dabble and jump up on stage with your students on occasion, don't you? Absolutely. I just did a. <laughs> I just got hired for voiceover work in Indiana two months ago. SAG voiceover work for a uh, uh, a podcast about a gentleman who was a reporter during the war years, Ernie Pyle. But I got to play basically. Um, if Ted Knight and Howard Beale became one character, I got to play this weird announcer. But yeah, I, I jump up on stage at the big events, you know, sort of like Ted Healy and the Stooges, if, for those of you who really remember back in the day. Wow, okay. Yeah, I know. I don't stay in the games much, but a couple of the games that I'm really good at, I make sure I'm in because I'm in the entertainment business. I know... And they want to see me. These events like these um, conventions, I don't want to say I'm one of the draws, but, you know, I, I'm my Q-level celebrity, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm right after Ernest Does Christmas, you know, I think. Okay. And you're still alive as opposed to Ernest. You know, I'm 66, still doing this. Where are you from? Can I get a suggestion, please? This the conversation has never changed. And anybody who's seen you and I in the '80s, if they would have bet the over, they would have made a lot of money. Oh, absolutely! No, well, you're killing at this point. Yeah. But but like I said, we're lifers. This is who we are. This is why you're doing this. You want to leave a legacy. I'm going to Indiana to to. I tell them one thing. I said when I'm gone and we've built this theater, I said all I want is on the men's bathroom door. It says the Peter Spellos Memorial Bathroom, because when somebody comes up to you and says, why is his name on that door? You can go because that guy was full of shit, you know, and that, that's the legacy I want to leave with, with, with a laugh that people go, why is there a name on that door? And in death, Jim, I'll know I'm still tweaking with the audience, you know. I think you need to make it even more and make it a, a sign on the toilet stall. 
Oh, as opposed to the fantastic. I, I love that you just tweaked that. That and I got a big Mr. Potato Head from one of the the kids at mm -hmm. Christmas. I mean, that was like that was like the gift of Sensei. What you yeah. here is the idol. He stolen from the cave. Um, I swear to you, Jim, when I get to theater, I'm gonna put a completed one. We're gonna complete it together. Everybody's gonna put one piece in. I'm gonna put a sign up that just says our founder and, and just kind of leave that as that. <laughs> You got to do them for yourself, too. You yeah, and I you know. Do. I wrote that joke for me. You know, what was the thing we used to say in a nightclub? Just because you're not laughing, sir, doesn't mean that joke wasn't funny, you know? Yeah. Um, we've been chatting for about an hour, so I do want to be conscious of your time. But I want to I wanna get this because a lot of people don't understand. They look at me and they go, you have a production company and you're still touring as a comic. Why on earth do you still teach? And I know for me, the answer is I teach because I learn. You know, and what is it about you that's made teaching such a passion for you in your career? Why do you think, in my opinion, if you have something to teach, you should be generous with your talents? I started coaching Little League when I saw all the fathers abusing the kids on the game during the game and the umpire. Because I just thought, this is not the experience that they need to have. Um, Everybody played on my team. I swear to you, we weren't the best team, but everybody played. We had a good time. We didn't boo the other team. Um, I think it's the absolute joy of seeing someone who thinks they believe they can do this and to help give them the courage or to show up the mirror and to show them, well, maybe this is not what you want. I, I think it's, I just think it's part and parcel of, of who you become within your industry if, if you're so fortunate. You know, I, I like to think of myself, Jim, at this time as an old Indian chief. You know, <laughs> and, you know more like the Fakawi Indians from F Troop. But I want to sit around the campfire. I want to regale tales of the hunt to the younger braves. I want to smoke a little peace pipe. I want to chase a little score around a fire. And really, I just want to go back to my tent at this point. Um, but the people who believed in me when I barely believed in myself, when other people didn't think I should have gotten that opportunity or that chance, those are the people I want to stand for. And that's a very important word in my life. I stand for every one of my students. No, I don't think, I think 90% of them are not going to have a career in this. But I'm not there to give them a career. I'm there to be their mentor and to, as my buddy says, he says, yeah, you don't teach acting, you teach life. I go, well, you know what? Same thing. I said, to be a great actor, you've got to go live. You know, I, I got young ones every once in a while that go, what can I do to be a great actor? And I'm like, go get your heart broken. Go eat something that moves that you don't want to eat. Go live in a city that you've never thought, you know, go live. And guess what? When you get back home, You'll be a great actor. It's them, Jim. They, I got to believe, I don't believe in much, you know, I don't believe there's, you know, an invisible man in the sky, as George used to say. I don't, I don't believe things are predestined. I believe, you know, I believe in the spirit that we're here to take care of each other, that, that, we have an opportunity, especially, and again, I'm going I'm to reference the pandemic that we're in right now. This is a great opportunity. Look what you're doing. 
You know, you're, you're creating something beyond yourself. Not so people remember, you know, the, you know, the Jim and Drino's car wash where they celebrate your hometown one day, you know. <laughs> but you do it because it's who you are. You're, you're a teacher. You're a mentor. You're a father, you know. These are our kids. You and I know that. Um, and they range from 16 to older than us sometimes. Yeah. But we owe it to them for all the people who gave us chances, you know. And it's not like I'm repaying a debt. I, 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 seven o'clock, I have the fifth week in our play reading series. We've been reading one-act plays. Sunday night is our lounge that we get together. Tuesdays on the PopCon Facebook page, we do an hour and a half uh, comedy radio show, basically, for those who remember Rick D's, but, you know, no disco duck. Um, uh, they inspire me, Jim, to be a better me. And I know that sounds really 60s. Well, you know, damn it, that's where I'm from. Um, that I want to live more. I want, I, I want to stay healthy so I can learn from these people. Because they're different folks in the Midwest. This is not my family. I'm first, second generation New Yorker from Greek. You know, our family much different than those people in the Midwest. Louder. Much um, louder. Oh, much louder. Oh, my God. No, that's why they look at me like, why is the fat guy so loud? You know, I'm, I'm honored to be their sensei. You know, my improv company, we all have nicknames because that's how I, one of the ways I show love, everybody has a fucking nickname. Um, and on my shirt, it says Sensei. And I'm telling you, Father of the Year Award, yeah, that's it right there. You know, couldn't. I got a 50-year, my buddy Sean Farrell, who I taught at CW Post when I was teaching in in 86, right before I got married, when I was saying, who's? Writes me and goes, Sensei, how are you? And I'm like, I'm fine, son, don't you worry. He's 50, I call him son, you know. <laughs> It's. You could have been. Yeah, that's another podcast. That's a, <laughs> that's a couple of other podcasts and at least a bottle of mezcal for sure. Yeah. But I think Jim, I mean, to wrap it up from my end, and first of all, thank you for including me in this um, in this comedy legacy because it's. You know, may not be the funniest guy in the room, and it's not anybody funnier. You know what I mean? And there, I'll tell you what, there's not anybody. And I'm not going to make it a competition. I adore the craft of comedy and acting. I hate the industry. That's <laughs> why I won't go back into it. But I adore our craft. I adore creativity. I adore being the, the minstrels and the, the town criers of, of today. You know, I feel lucky that someone gives me a microphone and, and, and you know, and where are you from? Yeah. I know that, you know, I, I, that's who I am. You know, I'm that guy. I'm writing a book right now with a friend of mine who's a terrific author. And the title, a working title of that book right now is I'm that guy in those movies. Cause it's a whole part of my career that I did all these B movies that you see me and you go, it wasn't, is yeah. he, see, we related to him. So I've had this career and we started out early together too. I was 30. You know, I, I didn't know what I was doing when I didn't hire you or did hire you. <laughs> Joyce Glasser, I, she was very funny. Petite brunette, right? Yep. Fantastic. Maybe that's why I hired her. I like petite brunettes. That's, all, that's always, 
And I can see why you liked her. I think I hired Jimmy Fife at that same audition. Jim Fife was at that audition. Yeah. Um, I, I think you took eight of us and four of us you did not. It was just simply a room thing. What? But I wound up taking the four I, that I couldn't take at that moment. Yeah, eventually, I, yeah. I had limited space. I was new. I felt bad. I, I honored all the bookings that Kerry Giese had. And then I went, all right, I get to choose. I trust myself. I've been doing this, you know. Did you make me laugh? Yeah, all of you made me laugh. But I knew that I had to present the show. And that's where I am with my yeah. career in improv. I'm in the entertainment business. <laughs> oh, I love long form for, for what it gives an actor a chance to work. But guy doing gibberish on stage, you know, Elf Theater, come on! You, <laughs> this stuff, this stuff, louder, faster, funnier. Bill Persky, it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. You know, that's a pie that's, in the face will be funny for all eternity. Ah, uh, soupy, soupy. Hey, Jim, yeah. thanks for doing this. We, for, I, I hope more of the comics say that to you. But you know, thanks for caring enough about our industry the way you do, and to and to leave something. You know, yeah. it's. They don't got to pay for the master class like you see online now, but, no, but this these, certainly these will are be the a master classes. These absolutely, because these are the people who um, who were in the trenches, and, and and I'm really truly honored that you consider me one of those people, pal. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, Thank you and, and we will talk to you soon. Just very before soon. You, before you go, tell people where they can find you online. They can find me online at, 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 at peterspellows at gmail.com, uh, peterspellows at gmail.net, or peterspellows.com, or Facebook, or at P. Spellows Twitter, or Instagram, or go. late at night, if you're on the ground floor. Well, never mind. <laughs> Pete Spellows, ladies and gentlemen. Pete, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, Jim. All right. Stay safe. You too. That was a great discussion. Fun times catching up with an old friend. But even more seeing how much you can reinvent yourself, but coming back to the same principles that brought you into the industry. Pete's lived many lifetimes as a performer, from popular voiceover artist to actor in feature films, to improviser, to teacher, and back again. And we were happy to have him on, and I think these are lessons that you can apply to what you're doing in comedy and learn. This has been the Comedy Legacy series. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tune in again next week. We're going to have another great episode for you. Thank you so much and goodbye, everybody. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.